Christian nomenclature, uh, but I especially loved uh, the children's songs that I grew up listening to and singing uh, in Sunday school. And there were, you know, some bangers in there, right? Like Father Abraham uh, was a good one. Jesus Loves Me, uh, theologically pretty, pretty solid. Uh, that, was, that slapped, as the young people say. Uh, but one that I was sort of mixed on, conflicted, was uh, this one called, I think the title is called like Deep, Deep, or Deep Down, Down. Uh, it's sort of this call and response uh, song where the leader uh, you know, would call on groups of people, you know, girls, you know, do you love your Jesus? And they would say, yes, I love my Jesus, deep down in my heart. And then the leader would say, guys, third graders, fifth graders. Um, and so I didn't mind that part, but I don't know if I just have a very trollable vibe or energy about my face or whatever. Uh, the leader would every Sunday without fail call on me individually. Uh, and I'm, I'm a shy, reserved, introverted kid, and, and so whenever the leader would ask me, single me out, Jason, do you love your Jesus deep down in your heart, in front of my entire Sunday school? Uh, initially, I was very bashful, right, in, a, in a hushed tone. Yes, I kind of love my Jesus deep down in my heart, or somewhere close to my heart. But as I grew up in the church and I matured by God's grace, uh, and learning more about the gospel, uh, that conviction grew and that fervor grew and, and then I would be called on time and time again and I didn't even care if I was going to puberty and my voice was cracking. I was unashamed. Yes, I love my Jesus deep down in my heart. But, you know, now I'm 35 years old. It's been a long time since I sang that song. And it's a question that I have been asking myself, and it's a question that I want to pose to you today. Do you love your Jesus deep down in your heart? Now, it might seem like a childish question. Some of you are like, why am I here on Sunday if I didn't love my Jesus? Right? Some of you are saying, I give money to the church. Of course I love my Jesus. But I think the question that we do have to pose to ourselves and to each other as a community is, do we really love Jesus? And this text today is rebuking in the sense that, man, when I look at this, this character, this sinner, I have to ask myself, do I really love Jesus like that? So two questions today. Do you really love Jesus? And maybe a more practical question is, how do I love Jesus? And so today I want to look at three characters, um, the sinner, the skeptic, and the savior. Right? And I'm an English major, so every one of my points have to, it must have alliteration, right? It's a sinner. I'm going to look at the sinner both in terms of identity, but also her attitude and her actions. And maybe we can glean something from that today. Now, as you guys may know, Luke is a masterful and meticulous storyteller. And he has now presented us with not just a character, but a caricature of someone who truly loves Jesus. In this narrative, I want to approach this character again with her identity, 
our attitude and our actions. First, as, as readers, we should take note whenever the author is breaking uh, that fourth wall, so to speak, he writes, and behold, notice that, he's signaling to the reader that something significant is happening. And in verse 37, we see the tension start to build. 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Luke gives two important identity monikers of this woman. She's ironically unnamed, and she doesn't even have any dialogue in this passage. So first, her identity, she's a woman of the city. This could be understood as someone who was very famous or, or popular uh, in the city, but when you juxtapose that with the moniker of a sinner, it is most likely that she was a woman of the night, a, a prostitute. So you could understand a woman of the city colloquially as a woman of the night. Already things are beginning to get awkward here. Now the inclusion of sinner here is interesting because Luke is not using this term lightly. He isn't remarking on the doctrine of total depravity. Right? Even the Pharisees knew that everyone was a sinner. A carpenter could be a sinner. A fisherman could be a sinner. So the inclusion of this, this title was almost like this woman's vocation. Woman of the city who was a sinner. Now this further strengthens the case that this woman was most likely a prostitute. Now, imagine for a moment the, the discomfort that is brought on in this situation. Or imagine this Sunday service, the post-service fellowship as you guys go out, and a newcomer joins you, and you realize this person is considered, I don't know, uh, uh, an infamous drug dealer, or, or someone famous for the crimes that they have committed. Imagine the, the discomfort and awkwardness. Now before I go on, imagine the headspace for a moment, this woman. Imagine the torment, both internally and externally, that is going on for this, this woman. She's considered the worst of the worst. She's not just social, uh, socially on the bottom of the totem pole, she's considered morally bankrupt. Uh, she is spiritually cursed. Uh, I mean, imagine having the title professional sinner on your LinkedIn. You know, hi, I'm a banker. Hi, I'm a farmer. Hi, I'm a sinner. This is absolutely rock bottom for, for her. So I ask you, church, have you been there before? Have you been in that, that dark place? Have you been there where your identity is absolutely wrapped up in perhaps the sins that you have committed? I know I have. And, and if you have too, you, you've come to the right place. There's hope for you, and I'll get to that later. But now let's move on to sort of her attitude and actions, because this is almost the most beautiful and vivid expression of this woman, not only loving Jesus, but actually understanding who Jesus is. Now, going, before I go on, I do want to pause here and, and go back to the question of why don't I love Jesus like I used to? Right? Do you guys ever lament the good old days? 
the fiery passion I had when I was in my youth, youth days. While I would cry every Sunday and every Wednesday and Friday uh, for in the name of Jesus. Why don't I love Jesus like that? When I think about the story, I think of perhaps the reason is I don't feel or maybe I sometimes have lapses of, of, of uh, you know, a conviction of the forgiveness of my sins. But, but this is where the woman actually gets it. It's the forgiveness of her sins, despite her torture identity and place in society, that leads her to love so powerfully like this. So her attitude and her actions. Let me just read uh, the 37 and 38 again. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So there's three sort of ways I want to describe this moment here. First, this woman was very intentional in her love for Jesus. Right? It's, again, this open sort of religious TED talk in sort of this uh, place where uh, the Pharisees and Jesus are reclining, eating good food, drinking good wine, and this woman of the city just comes. Right? She hears that Jesus is teaching. Again, imagine the palpable awkwardness that is there. But she loves intentionally. And that is important when we approach our love for Jesus. And then I'll demonstrate why intentionality is important. It's actually a um, correlation of truly how much we love someone. Um, many years ago when I was in seminary in St. Louis, um, my pastor at the time bought me tickets um, uh, to go see a live jazz show. And I, I love jazz. And uh, one of my favorite jazz vocalists was coming to town. Uh, his name is Kurt Elling. Um, that name probably means nothing to you guys. Uh, which actually adds to the charm because I love like sort of obscure and deep cuts. But look him up. He's really talented. But he was coming to town. And so he bought me tickets. And so I was so excited to see him. I enjoy good music. Uh, enjoy the club and just have a night, a night in town. Um, and so I remember sitting there just basking in, in the wonderful music and just having the time of my life. And so during intermission, I see Kurt Elling. And, you know, I have too much respect to call him just Kurt. We're not tight like that. Uh, he was just at the bar, uh, just drinking some water, taking a break. And, and my pastor was like, you should go say hi. I was like, no, you're crazy. You're crazy. But okay, maybe I will, right? Uh, I love this guy. When's the next time I'm going to see him? Remember, I knew that he was coming months in advance. So I told him, okay, I have a plan. I'm going to pretend to go to the bathroom, but sort of fake out and, and make a beeline to him. I don't know, maybe say hi, uh, give him my number. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, perhaps we could exchange pleasantries. I don't know. You're right. I was so nervous, and so I make a beeline to him. He's a little startled. He just wanted to kind of relax. Uh, me and my clammy hands sort of shake his hand, and and then you know I say, "Hey, my name is Jason. I love you so much." And uh, it's just really just a, an awkward situation. Um, but I had nothing, right? 
All I have from that night is a used bar napkin with his autograph, which I don't know where it is anymore. Now you would think if I truly loved this man, Cardelli, if I was such a fan, I would bring at least some, like a CD or something to sign, or, or something that I can keep. So it shows a sort of lack of in intentionality and anticipation of that night. And what could ask, you know, challenge me, do you really love Kurt Ellenbeck? Now I know it's a silly example, but this woman has been waiting so long to meet this man, to meet Jesus. And there is not just anticipation, but intentionality. How do we know this? First, she has this alabaster flask, this ointment. Now, I don't know what you imagine what you think a flask is, but it's not as like, big as you think. You could almost imagine like a, a small vial, like a container, that holds extremely expensive ointment. And she uses this to anoint Jesus' feet with this ointment. Uh, this account is different than the other Gospels accounts. Uh, two of them refer to a different Simon, and the other was Mary. But a rough estimate of this cost of this vial uh, was about 300 denarii, or roughly a year's worth of wages. Now, tell me that's not intentional. right? Who has a vial of expensive ointment lying around? Right, this isn't olive oil. This isn't just your everyday Calvin Klein, you know, scent that you have. Right, this is something that you save over a year, knowing and hoping to meet one day the man that has forgiven you of your sins. Do you see then the powerful expression already in in the months, the year leading up to meeting Jesus? And perhaps there's there's a thought: I may never even meet the man. But just in case, I want to have this expensive ointment ready. Are you intentional in your worship and love of Jesus? Do you come every Sunday morning excited, anticipating uh, something great to hear the gospel? As you read your Bibles every day, is there sort of an, an anticipation, a joy, or intentional in cultivating this, those spiritual disciplines? I pray that we can love Jesus like this. But later in the text, we are privy to some social norms here. When, when you invite a guest of honor, this simple woman could have been fine just using water, or even olive oil, if she was feeling a little fancy. But no, she goes the extra mile and uses this ointment. Now the question is, was that necessary? Wasn't it fine just to use water? Right? Couldn't she have just worshipped Jesus adequately with water or olive oil? And the answer is, of course. Right? Of course it, it's fine. The expression in itself, right? It's the heart that matters, as I've been told many times. So that question, is it necessary to spend this much money on ointment? That's the point. It's not necessary. It's lavish. It's extravagant. It, you could almost say it's wasteful. So the second adjective I want to kind of use is her expression of love and her worship is, is extravagant. And I'm rebuked by this because I don't love Jesus like this. 
And here's the sort of funny kicker. These alabaster sort of flasks were kept with a hard wax seal. So it's not one of those things where if you open, you could do like a couple of drops and say, all right, I'll save the rest for another special occasion. She had to use all of it. Right? She couldn't just keep half of it and recoup the money and say, right, wow, wow, what an expression of worship. She gave it all. So her worship was intentional, it was extravagant. Lastly, and this is probably the more, most beautiful part, she starts weeping. Right? Not the Korean drama, one tear down the cheek. It's this powerful expression of, of tears. Now the Greek word here, not to flex, right? But hey, I spent good money on seminary. Got to use one Greek word here. In the New Testament, this word actually is used to describe something that's raining. So Luke is saying this woman, her tears are like rain. What? Washing the feet of Jesus with her tears. Why do you think she's so overcome with emotion. I don't think she's sad. I mean, her sins are forgiven, and she's meeting her Savior, so I don't think it's, it's forlornness. This is why I think, I think there is such a cathartic release and joy of meeting her Savior. And here's the thing, no one actually plans to weep, right? Unless you're a, a good actor or actress. No one plans to weep. So even though she's intentional, she has this idea to, to anoint and kiss the feet of Jesus, something changes in sort of her design. She weeps. Right? How many times have you heard a testimony where someone says, yeah, I promise not to cry today, guys, and as they're sharing their story, what happens? They start crying. You can't control that. She's raining her tears on the feet of Jesus. And, but wait, there's more. It's not just that she's crying. As a, as a notorious sinner in that society, she doesn't have a, a, a cloth or a towel to dry her the, the feet, right? Because she understands she needs to do something about this situation. So what does she do? She lets down her hair. Now for us, we don't understand that, right? The social impact of that. But back then, the hair was a source of beauty, intimacy, and you only let down your hair, right? You only reveal your hair to your husband. In fact, if you were to do that publicly, it was almost as shameful as letting down your dress or garments in public. It was that. You know, it was equivalent, that equivalent. So not only she's weeping, she's letting down her hair, drying the tears at the feet of Jesus. It was scandalous. So not only is her love for Jesus intentional, not only was it extravagant, it was extremely humble. She didn't care, right? Gave no sense about what people thought of her. So a question I have 
when I read a passage like this is, what drives someone to do that? What drives someone to act in such a way of absolute loss? She exemplifies financial recklessness. She endures chiding and criticisms. She is perhaps taught or of even worse by, you know, thought of even worse by letting down her hair. She's kissing the feet of Jesus, which is absolutely dirty, having walked all day. Even the washing of the feet was relegated to the lowest of slaves. Slaves, yet the woman is kissing Jesus' feet, weeping, loving him. What drives her to that? And I'm not going to lie, I'm a little envious of, of this woman, of this type of love. Do you love Jesus like this? Intentionally, extravagantly, humbly, not caring who sees or how much it costs. Do you love Jesus this way? When I ask myself that question, my worship, unfortunately, is calculated. It's pristine to a fault. It's pretentiously ornate. It's hypocritically showy. Unnecessarily pithy. I hide, hide under the guise of, of theological acumen in hopes that somehow that translates into love. But it's really a shield to hide my deep insecurities of the question. Do I love Jesus deep down in my heart? Church, do you love Jesus? Now we have the skeptic. Now we have the foil of this earnest woman in, in this skeptic. Though the woman is categorized as a sinner, the reckoning she has to do with the truth is meant by an even greater truth that her sins are forgiven. Alright, so let's talk about the identity now of this Pharisee, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. We could deduce a few things, at least in terms of Simon's vocation here. He was a Pharisee, which meant that there was a certain expertise in the law. But I have to give him credit. Right, let's give him a little credit here. He doesn't bash Jesus publicly, right? outlandishly. He's just thinking to himself. Right? He's just thinking, man, if this man were a prophet. But do you already see that um, internal thought a little problematic? Right? Anytime you start a phrase off with, if this blank was blank, dot, dot, dot. Okay, let me give you an example. If you really love me, dot, 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 you would take out the trash. Right? If you really loved me, you'd do the dishes. Right? If this movie was so great, why did it get bad reviews? So, already in, in, in Simon's thought, it's already at a loss here. In, in Simon's mind, Jesus was nothing special. Because he's already sort of framing is thinking in, in this negative way. Now let's kind of talk about his attitude and his actions here. First, we see that his skepticism comes from years and years of conditioning. Right? No one is born skeptical. 
Right? No one just wakes up born cynical. When someone has had a string of unfortunate events, or someone is a product of building up false uh, expectations, cynicism, or skepticism, becomes sort of your defense mechanism. Right? But there's two sort of dangerous things about, about the skeptic. First, skepticism is rooted in pride because uh, you're, you're sort of uh, cultivating uh, your, your own truth and, and these walls, and then you kind of become a gatekeeper. So anything outside of your realm of truth, uh, you become, you, you either doubt or you, you're, you destroy or you, you criticize. Uh, and, and so we look at Simon, he's already stumbled by the fact that Jesus did not prevent this uh, woman to approach him, let alone kiss him. So his skepticism is already sort of bubbling over here. But look at this man's attitude, verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, uh, say to him. 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he counted the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Now usually when Jesus kind of speaks in parables, they're purposely cryptic. Right? They're, they're purposely a way to weed out sort of the fake disciples. But this story here is almost too obvious, right? I mean, it's, it's a math problem. It almost comes off as a trick question. Who, who's, who's forgiven more? The one who is owed five, 500 denarii or 50? But look at his skepticism, how it creates a callous heart. Now, Jesus gives this hypothetical situation, and Simon answers. Right, verse 42, Simon answered, The one, I, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. For me, when I was reading this passage, the, the, the phrase that stood out to me is, I suppose. I don't know if that sort of stood out to you. I use that word when I be, I'm reluctant or begrudging someone, right? When you, if you play a game of basketball, right, and someone says, hey, good game, I suppose, how do you feel? You feel like you didn't play a good game, right? Or if a boss, your boss says, hey, hey, good job, I suppose, how are you feeling? Not like a compliment, right? And so for Simon, it almost seems like, you know, he's very skeptical of this, this man. The one, I suppose, right? This reluctance, this begrudging attitude. And you know, skepticism is hardly innocuous. Skepticism isn't just a mental bent. You see, skepticism is a gateway to unbelief or practical atheism. Skepticism is what, in the other accounts, leads to people questioning this beautiful act of worship to say that money could be spent elsewhere. Skepticism, skepticism is the one that might judge this woman's act of uh, love as almost a, a, an erotic expression. Skepticism leads you to shun this woman of, as sort of a failure to love. And here's the ultimate irony that skepticism sort of leads to. For Simon, and for those that are skeptical, we can answer... Bible questions, theological questions, correctly. Right? He answers accurately, right? He answers correct. 
but still not know or love Jesus. Do you see that? Especially for those here that have been church for many years. You might know the answers to things, yet you might not love Jesus at times. And there lies a problem. If you consider yourself to be a skeptic, it can lead to sort of this behavior. Now, you know, his skepticism is actually not even in the person of Jesus, really. The problem with his skepticism is actually with himself. He fails to believe that he is the 500 denarius sinner in that situation. He maybe fancies himself as nearly a 50 denarius sinner. Do you see why that's a problem then, church? If you diminish the gravity of your sin, you also diminish the power and the impact of the forgiveness of your sins. And then what happens then is if you merely consider yourself a 50 denarii sinner, the cross of Jesus Christ and the atoning work of Jesus Christ is not that powerful for you. It's just a, a mere band-aid to a, a slight paper cut that you have. But, like the woman, if you identify with the 500 denarii sinner, the infinity denarii sinner, it's no wonder that this woman is able to love like this, because the gospel is so real and powerful. Church, it's one thing to have healthy doubt. Right? I encourage them to ask tough questions. But do not do not let your hearts be hard. Do not be skeptical about your own righteousness. All of us, brothers and sisters, are 500 denarii sinners. And all of us are in need of the forgiveness of our sins. Lastly, we have uh, the Savior. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Jesus asked this pointed rhetorical question to Simon, knowing that he actually doesn't see her. But more than that, Simon doesn't see Jesus. He doesn't greet him or kiss him. He doesn't do the basic etiquette of a host. But unlike the rest of that society, Jesus sees this woman. And I want to focus on that verb, see. Um, I've been going through this book with, um, with my younger cousin, and it's called Love Walked Among Us. Learning to Love Like Jesus by Paul Miller. And in, in one of the chapters, it, it talks about that verb, right, to see. And he uses two uh, stories to sort of make his point. Right? The, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. And, and his point is that there's a difference between just physically seeing someone with your eyes, but actually, you know, perceiving seeing the problems and the pain of the person and acknowledging the, the person. And even in the story of the Good Samaritan, we know that the, um, only the Good Samaritan actually saw the person and helped. So it's one thing to see, but it's to be filled with compassion and, and, and sympathy and empathy and to love, right? To be moved to tears in the brokenness of someone. And even in this engagement, Simon does not see Jesus or this woman. 
but the Savior sees the sinner. And likewise, when our Lord sees us, we are not some pitiful reclamation project, some spiritual fixer-upper. No, He sees how sin has ravaged our world and has moved to tears. He is compassionate. And He has done something about it. Now, when we look at this story, it's, it's easy to be like, man, I want to love like a woman, right? I want to love like this woman. In fact, I actually uttered those words, right? I want to love like this woman. The plot twist, the greatest love in this story is actually not the woman's love. It's actually the Savior's love that is the greatest love in this story. See, we marvel at the audacious love expressed by this woman and all the superlatives that can be thrown at her. And yes, what a beautiful expression of love. But at the end of the day, she's still a sinner. But our Savior loves us infinitely better than that of this woman. And that is why it's great news. Right? Our Savior did not just buy an alabaster jar of ointment to anoint our feet. He willingly shed His own blood, a far more priceless offering, to forgive our sins. Our Savior did not weep tears of joy like this woman because she knows of her forgiveness. Our Savior cried cries of dereliction and abandonment. Why? For our forgiveness of our sins. Our Savior did not just momentarily lay down His hair. He laid down His life, nailed on the cross, naked for public humiliation and mockery. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins. Our Savior did not just kiss our feet, but redeems our entire bodies. Yes, yeah, so the question, do we love Jesus deep down in our hearts? Maybe that question is depending on the day, our situation. Maybe we're not batting a thousand. But Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us even when we don't. I'll end with this. So how do we love Christ all? Um, I sort of cringe when pastors sort of quote lyrics. So here I go. I don't know if you know this love song. It's probably very famous, very popular. Uh, wise men say only fools rush in. But I can't help falling in love with you. Shall I stay? Would it be a sin if I can't help falling in love with you? Take my hand, take my whole life too, for I can't help falling in love with you. Wow, beautiful lyrics, right? While the lyrics of this classic song is romantic, I would like to make some gospel revisions here. Sorry, Elvis. Sorry, my bad. It isn't that we're so emotionally smitten with the person of Jesus that drives us to sort of this obsessive love. So then how do we get to that point where I can't help but fall in love with Jesus? It is not us who rushes in blindly or our contemplations of staying. It is even our vows to, to offer up our entire lives. What makes us can't help fall in love with Jesus is knowing that we are eternally loved by Him. We can love Jesus freely when we know that our sins are indeed 
forgiven. 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. When you know that you are forgiven, church, when you believe it deep down in your heart, you will love Jesus well. You can't help but fall in love with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your unfailing love for us. And Lord, we know that despite our best attempts that sometimes we fail, but your grace covers that difference. And we thank you for the presence of Jesus Christ that not only just is the economy of your grace, Lord, but is a reminder that every day your mercies are new. And so we pray that the gospel may just vivify our hearts and spirits, Father, for a life with you. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name.